Welcome to the Zero Hour Podcast, sponsored by Beecher Madden, the podcast that gives you the insight, techniques, and tools into top guests from the cybersecurity, governance, forensic, and data world. are recruiters for cybersecurity and corporate governance professionals. Leveraging our long-held relationships, industry knowledge and data-driven approach, we help companies and candidates make better hiring decisions. Welcome to the latest episode of the Zero Hour podcast and I'm your host, Cole Sharman. Today we are joined by Carla Refold. Carla is an experienced and passionate recruitment business owner, having set up Beecher Madden over six years ago. In October, she successfully sold her company to a global recruitment firm, Nicole Curtin, although she's still the current CEO. Despite the tests of being a single parent to two young children, her corporate governance and cybersecurity recruitment company now operates in the UK, Europe and the United States. She has recently been recognised as a contributor for Forbes and is a judge for the Cybersecurity Awards in London. Hope you enjoy. How are you, Carla? How are you doing today? I'm really good, thank you. Good, it's nice to have you with us today. Thanks, thanks for inviting me. No problem at all. So let's start from the beginning before we get into your fascinating recruitment career. Uh, so where was you born? Are you trying to get my security passwords? <laughs> no, <laughs> I'm, not, I'm not that forward just yet. Uh, I was born out in Hertfordshire. Okay, and who are or were your parents? Uh, my mum is called Beanie and she uh, works in a school and she worked in a nursery school while we were growing up. My dad is called Tony and he sells uh, lorries and is a DJ. Right, well I've got two questions before we <laughs> even move on. So Beanie, is that is that short for anything? Because that's quite an interesting name. It is. No one calls her by a real name. She might kill me if I say what it is. Okay. Interesting. Okay, she's been there. She can kill me. It's fine. Okay. There you go. I was going to move on and just save you, but you went straight in there. No, it would be good. And um, your dad sells sells lorries, but he's also a DJ. Yes. How did that come about? Uh, well, he's been DJing since he was a teenager. Uh, definitely since his early twenties, and just really enjoys it. So he does that a bit less these days, but uh, you know sometimes two or three times a week when he was younger mm. and he's really good at sales so he's worked for um, DAF trucks for about 25 years now I think. Mm. And, and where did you grow up? Was it in Hertfordshire? Yeah in Hertfordshire in Potter's Bar. Okay and, and what was your education like? Probably actually quite good. So the secondary school I went to is considered to be a, actually a very good school, but I just got lucky. It was the, the local school in the area, so my education was quite unpressured. Just um, followed the rules, was good at what I did, tried hard. Philosophy, quite a lot of sociology in there, mythology as well. So it was quite broad, very interesting, mm. very difficult. Create a career out of ancient history. That was going to be my next question, yeah, because what did you want to do going into that? I wasn't sure. Uh, I wanted to do law, and then I did a taster course on law and realised it was incredibly boring. So I went and did something that I found interesting, 
without really a view of where it would take me after, but that I would have uh, three years studying something I enjoyed. Mm. I have some quite good, interesting ancient history stories, so I'm probably an interesting person to, <laughs> to go around a museum with, but apart from that, there isn't a lot I can do with it. So what did you, coming out of university, how long was it between leaving university and finding recruitment? It was a year. So straight out of recruitment, uh, straight out of university rather, I went into lettings. Mm. And then about a year later went into recruitment because the skill set is quite similar, but in recruitment you earn considerably more money than you do in real estate. Mm. And how comes you, you know, what what made you make that choice? Did you feel that you could, you, you fitted that or was it the money or, you know, what made you want to get into recruitment? Partly the money, that's a big factor. Of course. But also the elements where you compete, you don't get paid if you don't do a good job, so winning is a really key part of that and I enjoy winning. Mm. I enjoy meeting people, I enjoy selling, uh, I enjoy working with energetic people around me and recruitment gives you all of those things. Mm. And recruitment, especially these days, is becoming a little bit more respected than maybe it was 10 years ago. You can do a lot with your career when you get into recruitment. You can go internationally, you can manage people very quickly, you can go and work in HR, you can go and work in the industry you've recruited into. There's a lot of different directions you can take it. Yeah, definitely, definitely. So when did you, when was the first time you, you ran into, you know, cyber data governance as you now really work in and focus on? When did you run into that for the first time? Probably about 2007. So um, after a year doing recruitment into finance, I joined a smaller company where we did corporate governance recruitment, which is what I still do now. And we did business continuity, that was very big at the time compliance and security. Mm. So back then it wasn't called cyber, it was just information security and it was still pretty big. Um, I did a lot in corporate security, there were probably more roles doing that now than there are today. And information security, that was the first time I started to get involved with it. So if you're looking back now, what tips can you give people who want to get into recruitment? What tips would you give them now, looking back? I always tell people to pick an industry to recruit into that they're interested in. It's, you can be successful in an industry that you don't have an interest in, but it's a lot more fun and a lot easier if you do like it. And then whatever you pick, go and interview as many places as you can, but pick something and then stick it in. So you're not going to be successful as a recruiter if you jump around every year or two years, but you will be successful if you pick a market, learn it, meet everyone you possibly can and stay with it. Excellent, excellent tip. So why are you so passionate about, about what you do? That's a very good question. Um, I've made a lot of really good contacts in the industry. People that I consider friends, um, people who I think consider me as a friend. I find the topic so fascinating. Mm. It changes really often. And there's so much about it that I don't know and haven't done yet. I opened an office in New York three years ago. Um, having recently sold my business and now being part of a company that has offices in Asia and Zurich, 
that's really exciting. I've not done recruitment in those areas, and there's some differences and nuances to those markets that still excite me. Mm. That's good. Where would someone get started? So you said that you said about going to interview elsewhere. How does that process start? How did you how did you come into the industry? I was recommended to the industry by a friend, and I just looked at who's there. Um, back then, the internet wasn't quite as detailed <laughs> as it is now. So you know, even down to looking in the, what was the yellow pages, what agencies existed locally to me that I could go and look at. It's much easier now. You know, you could Google anything and come up with pages and pages of companies in that area. You could look at um, members of REC or members of APSCO, who are those firms, and go and approach them. And I think firms love it when you approach them directly. I certainly do. If somebody calls me and says, I've looked you up and I want to come and work for you, I'm really excited to meet that person. Of course. That makes total sense. Okay, so moving on to cyber data and information security. Um, when you first started in 2007? Yeah. To now... What are the big changes that you've seen in the in, in ten years? The profile of security is so different now. Um, ten years ago, people had a reputation for always being the person you went to if you wanted to get a no, you can't do something. They were generally very technical people, very small teams, very low profile. Now, CISOs report to the board, perhaps even sit on the board in some cases. Everybody in a business knows what cyber and knows what security is. Even if they don't know anything about it, they know it's something they need to know about. The difference is huge. The industry is bigger. You probably struggled 10 years ago to get more than a couple of events a year. Now there's, you could go to an event every night of the week where someone's talking about security. Yeah, which is amazing. So moving on to what we do, and that's finding the best people for the best companies. I read something the other day through, through research, um, over 50% of jobs are now not getting filled in these industries. Um, so, so why is this if the industry is getting bigger? I think the skill set hasn't caught up and I think companies have not been sensible in where they look for these people. So there's been a lot of work gone into apprentice schemes or going into schools and talking to people about security and cyber and how that's a career path they can follow. But those initiatives take several years before they have a result on the workforce. We haven't really as an industry looked at people who return to work, uh, people who've had a career break for whatever reason, but you know, mothers being the most obvious one. We generally don't transition people from risk management or business continuity or crisis management where they've got really relevant skills um, and not many companies do that. They focus so much on a technical skill set that they've ignored the softer skills that people need to be successful. Yeah, that makes sense as well. What are some of these softer skills, as you mentioned it? People that are doing really well in cybersecurity at the moment are people that can talk to the business. They can go and communicate that technical problem to a wider audience. People who understand how security impacts the bottom line, impacts an individual doing their job, and where the balance is between we need to do something that keeps us secure and something that enables us to work. Somebody that understands how risk management works 
not just how a piece of technology works. Because mm. I, I know when we've had talks with different business leaders, it's very much about building the technical side and bridging them with the operation side. And I, I think that's I think that's obviously an area that in data and cyber has been missing yeah. for, for a long while. So what are the if you're if you're working with an organisation, uh, we don't have to name one, but if you're working with an organisation and you're looking for that right person, what are the sort of skills that you will look for in a person to be able to bridge that gap? If the role demands it, because not all of them do, then I need someone who can explain it to me in a way I understand. I have been in this industry a really long time, but I am not technical and there's a limit to what I know, can do and can understand. So if someone can explain the situation to me in a way that I get it first time round, that's a really good starting point. Somebody that's got a network, somebody that's passionate, somebody that actually feels inspirational. And I think if I put you in front of a HR manager or some a finance manager perhaps, you will get them excited and get them on board with what you need them to do to keep your business secure. Mm. No, that makes total sense. So, another thing you mentioned was the the greater awareness of the industry, of the jobs within the industry. How do you recommend uh, we increase awareness? How do you, how do you, you know, what, what do you recommend organisations do to increase the awareness of cyber roles? I think they need to try and get to a slightly wider audience. So I speak at a number of events about, generally about women in cyber or recruitment trends, and some of those events are security events, but some of them are just general business events. So I'm trying to get to a wider audience of people that then may want to go and explore that as a career. Um, I do some career fairs for school children so that people there are talking about it. Maybe they even go and tell their parents about what that's what that's like. Um, there's a lot on LinkedIn and social media sites where I think people are trying to push that out there. But it's, it's, it's a challenge. If someone's not looking for that, then they're not going to find it. Very true. Talking about events, I know, I know you do a lot in that space. So what trends have you seen at these events that affect recruitment, uh, you know, within cyber, information, security or data? What sort of trends are you seeing? Salaries are the big trend and the big area to be focused on. So salaries at all levels really jumped up a couple of years ago. And I think since about 2015 they've probably stagnated, apart from at the very, very senior end where they've just gone through the roof. Okay. You know, a million dollars as a basic salary is now totally achievable, there's a number of organisations paying that salary level. But at the, at the mid or senior management level it's, it's stagnated and candidates aren't happy with that stagnation. There's still a lot of demand for those people. So I think 2018 might be the year when that changes again and we see a bit of salary growth. The other trend that's really come to play this year is that companies are quite particular now about what they hire. Maybe two to five years ago, if you had cyber on your CV and a couple of qualifications, or maybe not even that, you would probably get the job and you'd probably get a 
percent pay increase on what you were earning because people were just desperate to hire you. Mm. Now people actually understand what you do, how you do it, and what good looks like, yes. and it's now much harder to get that increase or make that move if you can't do what you say you can do. And there's another thing that I know you like to talk about, which is <laughs> women versus men, especially in the salary bands, if we're going to focus yeah. on salary. So I've read two alternative um, statements, shall we say, which says uh, women were earning up to 30% more than men. And I've also read the opposite to that, which say women and men are earning very similar now. Mm -hmm. um, which one is the one that's right for the current state of affairs? Um, where do you see this going? 2017, they're running the same. So I've done research into this for three years running. And for the first two years, women were earning more by quite a way. And I was shocked when I did that research. I was doing that on the basis of, oh, women are being underpaid and isn't this terrible? You know, one of those standard articles. So I was really surprised to see them being paid more and by so much. And that's changed um, this year, my research. I couldn't find any clear examples where women were being paid more than men. Why do you think this is? Well, I think that nobody really agrees that women should be paid more than men. So yes. no one really agrees men should be paid more than women. I think equality is the key message. I think that we haven't actually been able to attract more women into the industry. The number of women hasn't changed on my database or industry-wide, so paying them more didn't have an impact. Um, one view that got put to me is that uh, generally most CISOs are still men. Maybe there was a bit of backlash against the, the research that was saying women were being paid more, but I'm not sure about that. I think maybe we're just at a place where equality and equal pay is now the order of the day. I would say women get job offers quicker than male candidates and they probably have more job offers. So I think addressing that diversity in the team is still an important part for a business but they're just perhaps not going to pay over the odds for it. Okay, so focus, still focusing on this in terms of obviously salary will be one of these factors but what are the other factors that organisations can give to candidates to convince them to go and work for that workplace? I think they have to really focus on things that aren't money. Companies clearly don't want to compete on money at the moment because mm. there isn't a limit to where you end up with that. Understanding that people really want a work-life balance, particularly in certain roles, that's really important. Certain technical roles where you don't need to be on site the companies that try and force those candidates to be there five days a week or even three days a week, they're not succeeding in hiring those people. Career progression is also really important. In our annual salary survey, money comes top, but progression comes second. And for the one we did almost a year ago now, we saw a massive increase in people expecting to get a promotion internally. I think it went up by about 40%. So I think companies are starting to realise if you've got good people, you want to keep them and they're putting steps into place to do that. And then probably the last thing is leadership. Who is your CISO? What recognition do they have at board level? And how is that going to impact your career when you join? So on the other side, what factors should, um, should someone consider um, before, before accepting a job offer? 
I think they need to make sure it's the right place for them culturally and that they're very clear on what that role actually is and how that fits their skill set. So I'm thinking about an example at the moment where I've got a candidate who's got an offer from a consultancy whose reputation is very technical and a consultancy who is more strategic. And he's swaying towards the one that's more strategic, whereas actually his background is technical, that's what he enjoys. And I think if he doesn't pick the, the consultancy that's more technical, he's going to be making a really big mistake for his own career longer term. That's a good example. Now, now I know what you're probably going to say to this, but what's your, what's your best advice for someone that's not happy in a job? Leave. <laughs> no, I knew it was going to be that easy. No, that's not true. If you're not happy, if you're, if you're not happy and you can talk to somebody about it and you can do something to make you happy, then you should do that. You need to look at what is actually making you not happy. Is it the people around you? Is it the company? Is it your salary? Is it that everyone in your team's left and you feel they're doing better than you? Because it's a whole range of things and not all of those will be fixed by you leaving the company. Mm. Is there a, is, do you think there's a shortcut to getting a job? Yes. Have a really good network. Get out, meet people, know who you can call when the time comes when you want to change. So we've talked about we talked about the candidate switch it back to the organisation again. I still think there's a lot of there's a lot of question marks of organisation to why they have information security teams, cyber teams, data teams, because there is not enough output, I suppose, in a way in terms of financially. There's not enough reason to say, you know, if you if you put in a sales team, you can normally see the output, you can very quickly have financial. So why is it so important for organisations to have these teams in place? Well, you're going to get fined quite a lot if you don't and something goes wrong. And different regulators in different countries are taking different approaches, but a number of them are really looking at cyber and what you're doing very, very hard. I think the Uber example is really current. They didn't handle that well. And I'm concerned about using them and where my data is going with them and if it's safe, as well as many other concerns about them at the moment and their reputation. But that that's come at a really awful time for them. And is a, you know it could be a real nail in the coffin for how they perform over here in the UK at least. So if you're, if you're not having the right team, your risk to your reputation and your business is huge. Mm. And how are people important to this? Because a lot of people would say that, you know, the processes, the tools they use is such a focus, but how important are people to all of this? I think the tools and everything else, they're going to be more important. If we can't fill the jobs, these jobs are going to get replaced by AI and various tools like that. I think that's coming. I think that's here already. But so many of the issues that happen are people-focused. They're errors, they're people having the wrong permissions, they're things that somebody could have spotted or with better education around your business you could have had. If you aren't talking to your CEO and something goes wrong and they're on TV saying all the wrong things, they look pretty stupid and that's 
incredibly damaging. So people are really key. Having the right people in your cyber team who get that and who can talk to the business in a way that engages them is critical. Now, this is probably a bit biased slightly, this, this next question, but as an organisation, who um, should they look to partner with in order to recruit the best staff? So in terms of what should they be looking for for an organisation like yourselves? Well, apart from me, obviously, you need to look at, um, do, the, do the company you're partnering with, do they actually know about this industry? Are they actually a specialist? Because in the last couple of years, everybody wants to be a cyber specialist because they see it as the next big thing. I would say there's less than half a dozen companies out there that truly are and that have that background. I've seen that HR teams and recruitment teams, they've wised up to that. They know that. Get recommendations from your security team. Look at websites, you know, what jobs am I advertising on my website versus an IT recruiter that wants to pretend they're a cyber specialist. The information's all out there. And where should, where should people, uh, where's the best place for people to look for jobs? There's loads of websites. I don't know that that actually works. I think you can spend a lot of time and not hear a lot back and get very frustrated. Recruiters are good, but I think nothing really replaces having your own network, going to events, meeting people, asking for people to introduce you, and doing a lot yourself. Mm. And given that 50% of jobs in the cyber market and information security market go unfilled, should we urge employers to look at people returning to work with different skills, um, you know, maybe a project manager who's done something in data governance might be able to move into cyber security, what's your biggest tips to, you know, cut this, cut this uh, stack down really? 100% you need to be looking at people who are coming back to work and people that you can train. It's great that we can train graduates or apprentices and that definitely has its place. But you can also train people who had a career of 10 years in something different and train them on what they need to know. And I think they'll have a bigger impact sooner. So that's really, really important. And for someone that, that is and has been successful in, in a short time within this industry, I suppose that's the, the beautiful part of recruitment, um, do you think that the culture and the way we think about the industry still needs to change in recruitment and and in where you work in cyber and data? Um, cyber's changing. I think it would be nice to see a slightly more diverse workforce if your customers are diverse mm. and you're not securing your products or your business in a way that works for a diverse customer base because you've got a diverse team, then I think that's really important. I think there's some changes to happen. But I think we're making the right moves. Recruitment's changed. Maybe not a lot in 10 years, but I think the reputation is starting to change. You know, people no longer want to hear that we're different and we don't do all these terrible things because that is just the expectation. People want to hear now, or at least my clients do, what am I doing that benefits the industry? What am I doing that moves us forward? What am I doing that's different and exciting rather than just saying I'm not terrible? <laughs> And, and how do you manage that expectation? 
Well, I think we're doing a lot of those things as a business. Yeah. The, the work I try and do around women in cyber, clients are really interested in that. The culture we've created as a business where my team and my people are really important, how they represent us. I think that shows, that comes across. Um, so I think getting that right for us, getting our people right so that we do the right thing, we deliver the right service. I think that's what's going to be really important. Mm. Excellent. And what is the biggest tip to be successful in recruitment? Work hard at whatever you've picked. Just stick at it. So whatever market what you pick, whatever company, you pick that for a reason. Just focus on that and keep going. Even when it goes wrong? Especially when it goes wrong. <laughs> and where do, you, where do you see... Where do you see the recruitment industry going? What's the next big trend that's going to come out of this? Technology automation is going to totally disrupt the industry. We're starting to see, see that. But that's going to disrupt the industry, I think, for roles where you recruit en masse. Mm. So I see that recruitment is going to become more important. Partnering with a specialist, partnering with people who add that human touch is going to become more valuable than it ever has been at a time when you outsource and automate a lot of that process. But that might mean that the industry shrinks a little bit, that actually only people who are specialists, who are networked and who understand the value of people in their process survive. And one final question on that. Going to cyber, data and information security, what trends do you expect to see? Uh, where do you see the industry going over the next five years? Because it's such a big time for all three of them industries, if you think about data with the GDPR, for example, where we are, um, cyber in terms of the breaches that are happening, it feels like daily now, um, and, and the size of them breaches looks like it's only going to get bigger. So where do you see that industry going? I don't think cyber's matured as a marketplace yet. So I think we're still in that phase where companies haven't put teams, processes in place. They're not, they're doing well, a lot of people are doing well, but we're probably not at a place where we know what amazing looks like and that those teams, that evolution, that hasn't happened yet. So I think we're going to get there. I think we're going to get to a place where actually we get 99% of it right and the things that go wrong are really where the bad guys are targeting those enterprises on a massive scale, not where somebody's made a mistake because they didn't put a patch in in, in time. I think it's going to be about really targeting organisations. Once that's happened, once we've matured, once a lot of the industry is doing well and doing things really at a high level, then things will start to change. You know, you'll get things that are more automated. There's no go going and setting up anymore. It's about maintaining it. So at some point in the future, we'll hit that point. So if we want to get to maturing as an industry, what do organisations need to do from today? They need to get the best people they possibly can in their teams. That's probably the number one. Get the right leaders. Don't just make your leaders the people that have come up through a technical route either. Make them people that understand risk or the business, understand how to put in high-performing teams. Get them to do that. Cover off the basics. And then let's start networking more as an industry about what 
grey does look like and get start getting some consensus on how to do that. So we always finish every podcast with 10 quick fire questions. I'm useless at this stuff. You're going to be fine. You're going to be great <laughs> at this sort of stuff. Um, so, first question, are you ready? Always. I'm not too sure you are, but we're going to go with it. What turns you on professionally? Winning. What turns you off professionally? Bad energy, low energy. How do you unwind? I don't. What profession other than your own would you like to try? Maybe marketing. What activity gives you the most energy? Probably running around after my children. Who is your biggest inspiration? Secretly, it's Hillary Clinton. If you had to present a speech right now, what one word would be it? Winning. <laughs> you're at your best when you're doing what? Working with really great people. If today was the last day of your life, what one lesson would you like to impart? That loving your family is the biggest success of your life. If heaven exists, what would you like to hear God say as the reason he is letting you through the gates? That is deep. That is not a quick fire question. That is a quick fire question. It's something that <laughs> come up in your head that says... That's what I want to say. That you treated everybody the way you would have expected to be treated. Excellent answer. So we're just going to come back to one of the questions. How do you not unwind? I don't have time. There's too much to do. There must be a point in your life when you just sit there and just relax. Have you, have you tried anything like meditation or anything like that? Uh, before I had kids, I did a lot of Bikram yoga. That used to be really, really good. But I do not have time. I've been joking at work at the moment that I want a film crew to follow me around outside of work hours because I work shorter hours so that I can uh, be there to pick up and drop off the kids at school. And I think everyone just assumes that I work part-time. I would love them to see how I never physically stop moving from the moment I wake up to the moment I go to sleep. I can imagine. <laughs> And why, why is Hillary Clinton your biggest inspiration, secretly? Secretly, I know, it's a bit of a... She's maybe not a popular choice, is she? Um, but I have always really admired the way that she overcame quite a difficult and embarrassing time in her life. And I think she came out of the whole situation when her husband was president really well. And... Especially with what she's achieved recently. She's gone on to do really good things in her own right. But I always just really admired how she overcame that situation. Thank you for listening to today's episode. For the latest episodes, please subscribe. And for future conversations, reach out on Twitter and LinkedIn.